The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, it was a decade stuffed with star-studded names. Zelda and Scott Fitzgerald, Walter Benjamin, Hannah Arendt, Salvador Dali, Pablo Picasso, Henry and June, and Anais, Thomas Mann. The decade, the 1930s that uneasy period between the Roaring Twenties and the outbreak of the Second World War. What do artists do in a time of uncertainty? Our guest today tells us they make art and make love, they write and they row, they bed and wed and betray. Fight, flight, or something else. How artists spent their days as the world careened from conflict to chaos and conflict again, today, on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. How is that for a teaser, people? All these figures and all this history. It's a great decade. And I didn't even mention Marlena Dietrich slipping away from her loveless marriage to cruise the dive bars of Berlin where Jean-Paul Sartre in his Paris cafe waiting for his first, first date with Simone de Beauvoir, who doesn't show up. LOL, poor Jean-Paul. Well, I guess he bounced back. Or I didn't mention Vladimir Nabokov placing a freshly netted butterfly at the end of his wife's bed. Europe in the 1930s. Wow. It's hard to believe it was almost 100 years ago. Hey, before we get started here, I've got a few things to be thankful for. I thought nobody was donating to this little podcast. I spent a whole year thinking that, but it turned out I've discovered that people were. My goodness, your generosity has been incredible. The problem was I wasn't getting any notifications, so I thought I was, <laughs> I was getting a little depressed. Here I thought I was being a blockhead. And doing this thing for free, and now I pay a producer, so it's even a little less than free, but it turned out that, that the problem was with those email notifications and not with the actual donations. So I texted my wife, it's a Christmas miracle, which was maybe overstating things a bit, the miracle being that I was less of a blockhead than I had thought, but I was able to pay some taxes and afford a few more days of my son's college tuition. Thanks to all of you who have headed over to historyofliterature.com slash donate. And of course, to those of you who have signed up at patreon.com slash literature, you have been angels and your angelic nature was much, much appreciated this year. Okay, here's another thing I'm thankful for. I am lucky, fortunate, to live in a fairly safe place. I've gotten several emails from listeners in Israel and Ukraine, and a few who shared with me that your app told you that the history of literature was your number one podcast. 
of the year, the most listened to. I started to cry every single time I got an email like that. I will keep your privacy intact and just say that we are all, all of us everywhere, hoping for the best possible outcomes for you and your loved ones in this time of trouble. Let's hope 2024 brings peace on earth. God knows we need it. Speaking of which, we'll be talking about that soon with our guest Florian Illies. That decade in between wars, world wars, but of course most people at the time in the 1930s could sense what was happening. We're all like cattle who start to herd themselves together when the rain is coming. You feel it, a gathering storm. And they felt it in Europe in the 1930s. But how do you respond? You can choose to ignore, or you can live more cautiously or more dangerously. And artists and intellectuals are canaries in the coal mines of changes to the political winds. When civilization starts to break down, artists see it. So what did they do? Florian Illies will tell us what he discovered when he looked at this question. But let's start with something a little more fun and seasonal. Some writers of classic holiday songs I've been reading about. Christmas songs, I guess these are. This is from a a Billboard article about Christmas songwriting all-stars and a few other articles I read. It's mostly the 20th century classics. I'm also interested in the writers of the songs in the centuries before that. Silent Night, for example, which was written by Franz Gruber, not to be confused with Hans Gruber, the supervillain in Die Hard, Alan Rickman character. That's another good Christmas, little Christmas touch there, Christmas movie, Die Hard. Franz Gruber was an Austrian school teacher and church organist, and he wrote this this damn little song, Stille Nacht, hope that's pronounced correctly. We call it Silent Night in English. It was written in 1818. All nachts were pretty stille back then by our standards, but I suppose he thought his world was pretty clamorous with, I don't know, horses and Carriages pattering by his window, and who knows what else, screaming children, barn animals, bleeding and mooing. He was living in a town called Arnsdorf. Probably felt like a metropolis at the time to him. It probably had something like 500 people. That little tune that he wrote has been recorded more than 137,000 times. Those are just the ones that have been documented. That's not counting a a little private recording. Those are the the official recordings. 137,000 times. But we will move on. We're focused on these 20th century tunes and some star star songwriters like Johnny Marks, who had so many hits. He was Jewish, by the way, which is a common theme for these 20th century songwriters. He had so many Christmas song hits that Johnny Marks named his publishing company St. Nicholas Music, Inc. Marks fought in World War II, reporting up the chain to General Patton, and he was part of the invasion of Normandy. In 1948, he was home from the war 
and looking through his old notebooks, and he saw a phrase that he'd scribbled after seeing a promotion for the Montgomery Ward department store chain. And he'd written down simply, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. He wrote the song that went on to make him a million dollars in royalties per year until his death in 1985. He also wrote Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree and A Holly Jolly Christmas and Run Run Rudolph. Not too shabby. But he gave an interview late in life where he said, (laughs) where he said, this is not exactly what I hoped to be remembered for. Well, poor Johnny Marks. Well, I wasn't hoping to be remembered as the guy in the ditch with a towel over his head, but we don't always get what we want. At least you were well paid, Mr. Marks. Those songs aren't my favorite. The two Rudolphs do not even make my nice list, but I respect the success of them. But let's turn now to Johnny Marks' hero, Irving Berlin who famously wrote White Christmas, despite being Jewish also. Irving Berlin also wrote Happy Holiday, and I've Got My Love to Keep Me Warm. Some good Christmas tunes there. He also wrote God Bless America. My goodness. Between God Bless America and White Christmas, that's like saying, well, I'm the guy who invented apple pie and ice cream. Hard to get more American than those two songs. Berlin knew how good White Christmas was. He was in Palm Springs when he wrote it. It was a particularly hot day, and he was literally dreaming of snow. That's what you do when it's a million degrees outside, if you can bring yourself to bear it, which he did. He wrote the song, he came out, and he told his secretary, not only is this the best song that I ever wrote, it's the best song that anybody ever wrote. Imagine that kind of feeling running through your veins. Must feel great. Like you could walk outside and jump over the house. But Christmas was for Irving Berlin tinged with sadness. The best Christmas songs, not the best. Well, uh, hmm. should I say best? There are great ones. I was going to say the best Christmas songs are sad, but maybe that's not the best. My son's favorite song is the most, it's the most wonderful time of the year, which is upbeat. But the best for me are the somber ones like Silent Night and Old Little Town of Bethlehem and, and Christmas Time is Here and I'll Be Home for Christmas. White Christmas is a little somber. And maybe that's because Berlin associated Christmas with the death of his first son, Irving Berlin Jr., who died at just one month old on Christmas Eve in 1928. Irving Berlin visited the grave of his young son every Christmas. He wrote White Christmas 14 years later, but the pain was still there. Speaking of mega hits, let's close things out with One last song, the song that now dominates everything, Mariah Carey and All I Want for Christmas. You hear this song the most. It sells the most. It's the number one on all kinds of lists. It's a recording phenomenon. Who wrote the thing? Well, it turns out Mariah herself, which I did not know. 
She said she wasn't too enthusiastic about recording a Christmas album. I felt like it was a little bit too early in my career, she said, and then I decided to do it. Indeed, she did. She co-wrote the song with Walter Afanasyev. And here's where there's some some current friction, some dispute. I hate to delve into these to into a dispute here because of the holidays, but maybe some antagonism is part of the holidays, as those of you with families who fight will know. So Walter and Mariah had worked together before. They worked together on her song Hero and other songs as well. And Walter, he's no slouch. He had some songwriting chops. He wrote among a million hits. He wrote My Heart Will Go On, the Celine Dion smash from Titanic. So what happened? His version of the story is that he was playing some rock and roll piano and he did some boogie woogie with his left hand. And Mariah called out, I don't want a lot for Christmas. And then the two of them built the song together, him on the piano, her singing out lyrics, and and he eventually put in some special chords. And for the next week or two, they would call each other on the phone and work out the music and the lyrics together until it was ready to record. While Mariah tells a different story. Her story is, quote, I am proud of this song that I wrote basically as a kid on my little Casio keyboard. I just sat down, decorated a little tree, and put on It's a Wonderful Life and tried to get into that mood. Then I sat in this small room with a keyboard and started doing little melodies and stuff. In her version, she had the song all done when she came to the studio, and Walter was there at the studio and part of the recording process, but she kind of leaves out the part that Walter tells us that he was playing the piano, which apparently she doesn't play. And although you could write a song without playing the piano, so that doesn't necessarily say who's... I don't know who's right about this. I don't think Walter would lie about it, but I don't know why she would either. She credits Walter with co-writing other songs, but anyway, Walter's wife doesn't appreciate her husband being written out of the story, so she tweeted one year... All I want for Christmas is for Mariah to stop claiming sole credit for this song. And Mariah's fans jumped in, pointing out that Walter has benefited from Mariah's recording, which is undeniable, and I don't think the uh, either Walter or Walter's wife ever denied that. Mariah made this a huge mega hit, after all. But the fans jumped in and... in their attacks. One of them said, if it weren't for Mariah, your husband would be on the unemployment line. And Walter's wife tweeted back, is that what, oh, is that what they call Barbara Streisand's studio? Because that was where Walter was working, writing songs. That's a very good comeback. I like, I'll need to remember that one if I ever have any success. I need to take down any detractors. You know, someone says, go to hell, Jack. And I could say, oh, is that what they call my big house? <laughs> with, a, with an eight-car garage? Okay, well, there we go. That's your Christmas songwriting stars for 2023. Just a few. We didn't get to everyone, of course. But full of 
love and joy and sorrow. And now we have art and passion and love and hate in between a, in a tumultuous decade, an uneasy decade. Florian Illies after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Florian Ilias, a writer, editor, and art historian who is the author of five international bestsellers, including 1913, The Year Before the Storm. He joins us today to discuss Love in a Time of Hate, Art and Passion in the Shadow of War. Florian Ilias, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very glad to talk with you. So let's start out by setting the time and the place. I guess we're in Europe, mostly Germany and France. And which years does the book cover? My book covers the decade between 1929 and 1939. Mm-hmm. It's the same idea that was lying behind uh, 1913. Mm-hmm. So 1913 covered the year before the storm. The storm was the First World War. And this is a decade before the uh, Second World War. Because I think to try to understand what happened in the Second World War, what happened to civilization in Europe in 1939, you need to know what happened uh, in the 10 years before the Roaring Twenties, especially in Berlin, especially in, in Paris, you have an explosion of cultural things coming out, dancing, painting, literature, everything seems to explode in a positive way. And then we have the economic crisis starting in October with the plague of the stock market and it's the whole society in mm. Europe because they suddenly realize that they are not looking into a brighter future, but they are somehow between the walls. In the years around 1930, the people are not uh, willing to look into the future anymore because they sense that the future will not bring a lot of 
good things and they are even not willing to look back because in the past there happened this first world war which was really the ground zero moment for the for the society in Europe because it destroyed everything not only the, the cities and the bodies but especially it destroyed the souls of the, the people as you can tell from the movie of Erich Maria Remarque which won the Oscars last year mm-hmm. about the nothing new on the Western Front. That is the society I am talking about. Men and women uh, in the decade after the First World War, and they really struggled and they really tried to find a new way to deal with, with a totally changed society. They tried to deal with it totally new relationship between the sexes. I think this is a really important thing for me to, to look at the society and on the role of uh, women and, and men and has really changed because most of the German or French men have fought in the war and they were lots of them had depressions. They were at least very, very unable to work anymore. Though so in the 20s, there was a big movement of the women taking over the work in the in the companies. They there were suddenly the women were allowed to vote. They were allowed to sit alone in the in the bars and in the cafes. They were writing novels. They were taking photographs. And suddenly there's a new generation of women in Europe which uh, replaces more or less the weak generation of the man and this uh, meant a lot to the relationship between the sexes of course and i try to cover all this in the first chapter of my book to give the reader a glimpse of this really astonishing uh, modern society around 1930 in europe i think Mm. it was really a modern society in our sense in terms of equal payment, equal rights, and other things which seem to be quite balanced between mm. the sexes. This is important for me to to have a better background to describe how important the shock of 1933 was, how important the shock of the Nazi movement coming into power was, because that changed everything. The mm. whole society changed and you have to imagine that that in in january 1933 the nazi came into power and during the next days or weeks all the important german authors left germany thomas mann bertolt brecht erich maria remarque they all went to switzerland or and then to france to get away from this nazi germany and of course, all the Jewish uh, philosophers like Hannah Arendt, they all had to leave this Germany in 1933. And all the people who were able to get out of this hell in 1933, even in the German Jews in France, they tried to get to uh, New York. Hmm. Before we get to 1933, I want to ask about those years from 1930 to 1933. And you've described them as a time of disorientation and dizziness and fear and and desperation. I'm wondering if the changes that you describe to the 
relationships between men and women and the role of women in society, did that feed into the feeling of uh, change and, and disorientation? Or was that a sort of a, a silver lining to the cloud of the growing storms? Did they look at that as a positive thing that they could appreciate and in some ways help them cope with what they saw as the coming storm? Or was this more part of the turmoil that they were going through? I think from their contemporary perspective, and I looked a lot into diaries, uh, letters of all the heroes of my book, I think they thought that it was positive. It was a manifestation of sexual freedom, at least at the Bohème Society in Berlin or Paris, uh, to have a mistress, and it was a bisexual relationships was very normal, lesbian, gay, uh, all these things was positive around 1930. And I think it was uh, seen by the people as the first totally free society. Mm. Exactly this sort of sexual freedom they practiced was part of the propaganda of the Nazi party against this freedom. And they were claiming that Berlin or Paris are uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah, so like biblical towns mm, mm-hmm. uh, where everything is possible and that one step ahead of the hell. And so what we, from our perspective from today, uh, look at as being very modern, uh, modern society, modern relationship between the sexes was in the time, unfortunately, possibility for the Nazi party to take all the conservative voters behind them because mm. they're telling though, do you still want these people living in Berlin? Do you want this sort of, of rotten society existing in Germany. And though they got all the conservative voters by accusing this society of being lost, of being too free and so on. And I try to describe what it meant to the, to the authors, to the philosophers, to the painters. In my title, Love in a Time of Hate, I am looking at the, the three different types of love which are dominant at their time so before 1933 in the end of the weimar era in the end of the roaring 20s i think the roaring 20s do not end 1929 but they do end 1932 so these roaring 20s they were dominated by the sexual uh, erotic type of love which was possible suddenly and then with 1933 Everything changed because it was not possible, let's say, to be in a relationship with a foreigner. It was mm. not possible to be in a relationship with a with a Jewish woman or man. It was not possible to have a gay relationship. Everything was impossible that was normal two months before. And so suddenly sexuality was something very dangerous. Mm. And these years after that, then love was more or less something which is something exists between people even if they have affairs or have, uh, mistresses look for example at Lotte Lenya and Kurt Weil they were already divorced but then they in 1935 
they emigrated to the U.S. with the same ship and then they married again for the second time in uh, in New York. Uh, and this is very typical for a lot of these couples. They were more or less at the end of their love in the time about 1932-1933, but under the dark clouds of the Nazi era, they found together again and they realized sometimes that there was a bigger love towards their former wife or former husband or to their brother or to their siblings. And this was a more or less a time of this not sexual sort of love. We all know these two different sorts of love today, but we know not that sexuality is something that can bring you uh, into jail. And that was really not only the jail, it could bring you into a concentration camp after the 30th of January of 1933. And this is the crucial point for for what love meant before and what love meant after the uh, January of 1933. Mm -hmm. And what did this mean for their art? Did it put their art on hold? Were they able to address the growing hate and the atmosphere? Were they censored or were they self-censoring? Or what do we see from these artists as they respond to these circumstances? Very interesting that this very, very difficult period, let's say, crucial period of history in the 20th century, perhaps one of the most depressing decades of the 20th century, did not create a lot of works of art. Mm. It was a time when all the artists concentrated on their private life. Mm. So I think the most important things in looking at the literature of this time the diaries, the letters are more or less in terms of quality and in terms of intensity are perhaps the important work. For example, the German author Thomas Mann or his son Klaus Mann, I think their diaries from the years 1932, 1933, 1934, 1935, they are of higher quality than the, their attempt by I think it was not a good time for the art. It took all of them some time to react. Uh, we have Sartre, the famous philosopher, for example, Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. They are both in Berlin in the year 1933 as exchange students. And mm. that, uh, looking at their letters and their works of art, you will find nothing about the Nazi time. They just ignored it and, and they were in love and, and enjoyed uh, the food in Berlin. And it's the same with, with Miller and the Fitzgerald in Paris. They just uh, ignored what happened uh, in Europe and what, especially in Germany. And though they are, of course, some very important works of literature, but I can tell that there's nothing really important from the German or French original uh, literature from these days and looking at the painting or the visual art, you have this surrealistic movement in Paris, but I think the most important work is uh, Guernica by Picasso, but that is in the late 30s, and this is already uh, a painting about the Spanish Civil War, and it's already a painting which we today see like a first 
vision of the Second World War. Mm. So it's very, very difficult to, to find words, to find uh, pictures for a period when you are in panic, when you are frightened, especially because uh, you know, if you're a Jewish artist or a Jewish writer, that it could kill you if uh, the Gestapo and the Nazi police or the Nazi soldiers would find one of these works because it uh, can uh, cost your life. So it's a difficult time for the art. It's a difficult time for the souls and it's a difficult time for for the human beings. And they were too frightened to already have the ability to deal with this fear. I think the important works on this period were all written later. Let's take a quick break and come back with more from Florian Ilias. are back. Florian, I was wondering if there's a passage you might read. The book has an unusual format. Yeah. I was wondering if there was a passage or two you could read to give us a sense of what the book is like. Yes. To give you a better sense, I think I have to read two small uh, mosaic parts of it because all of my books consist of a lot of shortcuts. My style of writing, in fact, inspired uh, by Robert Altman's movie and his idea of building the the reality or the truth out of hundreds of small clippings. Mm-hmm. And so I want to give a impression of that by reading one or two of these small shortcuts to you. Okay. No one in 1929 has yet invested any hope in the future and no one wishes to be reminded of the past. This is why everyone is so recklessly absorbed in the present. What does he think hell is? Simone de Beauvoir asks him after they've brushed their teeth and before they go to sleep. Jean-Paul Sartre sits up in bed again and says, Hell? Well, hell is other people before your first cup of coffee. Noticing her sour expression, he asked, I was talking about other people, not (laughs) you, Simona, not you. Good night. Okay, so that gives an impression of how I deal with my heroes. I try to put humor into looking at them I, 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 because I, I really think that helps and it helps especially in these dark times. I try to bring sort of life uh, by present sense style and life by describing the scenes they are in. It's important not always to to tell everything you know as an author 
I really think the author has, has to work hard on finding the anecdote that has the essence of the whole thing in it. And then it's not necessary to write 30 pages about Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, sometimes it's enough to just to write three sentences and you get an impression mm. of how toxic their uh, relationship was. Right. It does seem like you described the moments of humor, and it does seem like even though politics was on their mind and was affecting their lives and their art, so many of the figures that you have selected are facing this as a couple. Or, you know, it's Thomas Mann and his wife and their children, and Nabokov and his wife Vera, and you gave the example of Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. We've got Henry Miller and his wife, June, and, and his lover, Anais Nin, uh, Picasso and Olga and Marie Therese. It just goes on and on, Herman Hesse and his <laughs> wife. And it does seem mm -hmm. like, you know, for as much as these people were facing, so many of them were facing it with someone else. Yeah, you're totally right. I think if you ask me... What is very, very obvious is that this dark time, this dark cloud over all the people forced them to look for a person they love, to look for their husband, their wife, their, the people who are close to them, to have a space to feel secure in, because these are the only spaces you, you can say everything you want. After 1933, sexuality is not the important thing of love. Love is uh, immediately much more a question of trust. Mm. So to put together a book like this, what kind of research do you do and what's your, what's your working method like? Are you gathering stories, reading books and, and letters and diaries and so on and, and making notations and then compiling them out of that or how do you how do you go about putting together a book like this so my working style is very chaotic i mean reading everything i can get it's a little bit like if you if you what you're doing with, with wikipedia surfing you, mm. you're reading one biography and suddenly the, the name mentioned uh, i've never heard before and then i try to figure out who's this guy or who's this woman then i I'm going to archives and I'm going to old newspapers or I'm looking for memoirs. And then sometimes I've found whatever memoirs or letters of forgotten mistresses of Bertolt Brecht or, or uh, friends of uh, Thomas and Katja Mann and Klaus and Erika Mann. And they were telling their friends about these times. And so I feel like Scotland Yard investigator mm -hmm. uh, looking which person could tell me something new and could give me new insights about famous people. And the whole thing in, in this, in the case of this book was to describe the impact of history, the impact of this decade to the souls of uh, famous cultural figures. And you have diaries and you have letters. And I really think it uh, was a wonderful thing that they uh, have written that much about their uh, personal feelings. And after 70 years, all this material is free. To look at this 
book especially, it was for me very important. Uh, let's say I had 10 books about Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, and I, but it, suddenly I realized, okay, I, I can only go with all my figures through the Roaring Twenties, and then I have to go with all my figures through the year 1933, and then I have to go with all of them until 1939, because during the, let's say, year of writing, I'm really living in this time. I'm listening to music from the Roaring Twenties and looking at paintings of this time. I'm ordering at eBay a lot of old newspapers, mm. magazines, to really get a, a very broad picture of the time I'm writing about. I think that's necessary to describe the atmosphere these people lived in. I think it helps to have a lot of, of the original material around you to get a better impression how the people felt in that time. Mm. I heard a story once of a scholar who was going through an ancient text, and when he realized that what he was translating was a story of the flood uh, of Noah, but he wasn't translating the Bible, it was a separate account of the flood, he, he was so excited that he took off all of his clothes and started running around his studio. And I'm wondering, when you were doing the research, I don't know if you took off your clothes and ran around the room, but were there any moments where you thought, wow, I, I can't believe I found this treasure, or this is really surprising, I'm, I'm so excited to be able to include this in the book? Yes, I think the most crucial week I had was a week uh, in Saint-Marie-sur-Mer at the Rivera in, in, in France. I went there because that was the place where in 1933 all of the German intellectuals met. They all lived there. It was a place that Aldous Huxley actually has discovered. And then Bertolt Brecht, Thomas Mann, Klaus Mann, Leon Feuchtwanger, all the famous authors went there and lived there. And I did my research there for two weeks and it was really important for me, for example, to get an impression of Thomas Mann if he had the possibility to the wonderful noises the sea is making, then the waves on the beach and, and the seagulls and everything. The, the house is still existing, they lived in, and so I managed to get into the garden, and after getting all these impressions, I was writing my three pages about him sitting there writing and thinking about his own future, how the light is, where the shadows are, what are the things they, they were listening to. I it did not take all all my clothes, but <laughs> I did take off my jacket. And then later on, I, I read the diaries again of Thomas Mann. I found that he every day was wondering if this is the day he should take his jacket on or off. <laughs> we are talking now from my desk in Berlin. My desk in Berlin is only 200 meters Away from the flat, Billy Wilder uh, lived in uh, when he was in, in Berlin. And it's very, very close to uh, 300 meters to the flat of Marlene Dietrich. She lived in before mm. she went to the U.S. So it was much easier for me to get an impression of the late 1920s living in this area, uh, going to the places and looking at the same church they visited 
that helps a lot to bring the atmosphere into books and to bring the real life into books. Uh, and I've written the whole book with my clothes on. <laughs> the book is called Love in a Time of Hate, Art and Passion in the Shadow of War. Florian Ilias, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you very much. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Florian Ilias for joining me, and of course, to all of you. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>